Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for just another day that you've given us, another opportunity to worship your name, Father. We just thank you for each and every one that is here this morning. We just ask that as we dig into your word, Father, that you would just enlighten our hearts that we might see what you have for us today. We just ask this in your name. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you again this morning. Um, What do you guys think of the book of Judges? (laughs) I know Matt loves the the passage that you all covered last week, Um, so I really enjoyed hearing his message on that. Um, I'm going to be honest, uh, it's not exactly the easiest book to study, Um, but I believe God's laid something on my heart, and I'm going to try and be faithful to that. Now, I wasn't going to share this. I just kind of, as I was walking up, I thought, well, I'm going to say this, but um, who all knows what a shrew is? Okay. If you saw a shrew, would you know that it's not a mouse? Everybody's giving me a blank look. (laughs) A couple weeks ago, uh, we've lived in our home since 2013. A couple weeks ago, I saw a mouse in the basement. It was really slow moving, which was great, because I just grabbed a yogurt container from the pantry, and I trapped that sucker, and I took him out, backyard, threw him over the creek. Didn't think anything else of it. This morning, I woke up, and I was down in the basement studying, and my daughter was attempting to do everything she could to interrupt my studying, and all of a sudden, I see this black shadow running across the wall again. It's like, there's a mouse again. So this time, I grabbed a clear yogurt container, grabbed it, and was able to see it a little bit better. Well, of course, I was like, this doesn't look like a regular mouse. So my studying got put aside for a few minutes while Google came up, and I figured out this is a shrew. And they can't see. They use, uh, what is it? Not Doppler, but uh, sonar. Yes, thank you. They use sonar the same way that a bat would. And it said that when you, if you trap them and get rid of them, you have to throw them about two miles away from your home because they will find their way back if they like it. Now, the fact that we got the, that this morning when I'm pre- preaching from Judges and we see the children of Israel returning again and again and again, um, I found that kind of interesting. But if any of you do live halfway between Berlin and Millersburg, you may have a shrew in your home soon because that's where he got dropped off this morning. (laughs) So enough for that deviation. Um, Let's turn to Judges chapter 4. In the reading plan today, we, or this past week, we've been covering chapters 4 and 5. But since there's so much text, we're only going to read through the first 15 verses of chapter 4 and then mix in the rest uh, as we go on. Um, We won't read all of it, but a good portion. Uh, You know, I did think, you know, if I couldn't find too much to talk about, I could just read all of the text, and that might give me, you know, about till closing time. But I'm not going to use that cop-out. But let's set the stage here for what I want to talk about this morning. Judges chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, going through verse 15, and then we'll jump down. Uh, to verse 23. Um, let's begin in verse 1. And the people, people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. 
And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth Hagoyim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapideth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Obinoam, from the Kedesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 people, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon, with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go, then I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your, to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kedesh. And Barak called Zebulon and Naphtali to Kedesh, and 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. Now Heber the Canaanite had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zananim, which is near Kedesh. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him, from Harasheth and to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up! For this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him, and the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. Let's jump down to verse 23. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. Let's pray one more time. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for the text that we have this morning. Father, I just ask that you'd open up our hearts, help us to learn from it today. Um, and Father, uh, wherever this may apply to our lives today, Father, help us to take it seriously and help us to uh, not just hear it today, but to go forward and, and practice it uh, outside of these walls, Father. We just ask this in your name. Amen. Uh, I just want to say that what I have to to talk about today, what I'm going to say, um, it could be taken as legalism, as working for our salvation. However, I want to assure you this is absolutely not my intent. The only thing that we contribute to our salvation is our sin. Salvation comes through Christ alone. He is the only one who does that work. But as believers, we're not called to sit idly by. We are called to be in the battle. And that's what I want to talk about today. Um, so if you hear legalism, you can reprimand me for my communication skills, but please know that that's not my intent. Uh, so over the past few weeks as we've been working through the book of Judges, we've seen time and time again how the children of Israel have sinned against God, um, who then handed them over to punishment and then finally they've had enough of it and they start crying out to him, they repent and God raises up a hero or a judge 
and uses that person to work a deliverance on their behalf. And then, once again, um, you see that they have peace. But what set up this cycle that they seem to just go through over and over again? Well, I want to take a look back a little bit uh, during the Exodus journey. Uh, God instructed the children of Israel after crossing the Jordan that after crossing the Jordan and entering the Promised Land, they were to eradicate the Canaanite influence. Um, they were supposed to remove them from the land. It would make it a haven, a place where God's chosen people could live free from outside influence, outside gods, and they could worship him alone. And we read about that in Deuteronomy 7, and it goes like this. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their ashram and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, so that was the command back uh, around the time that they received the Ten Commandments. But Israel, the Israelites, they did not follow through. They did not completely remove those influences from the land. They instead shied away from the bigger fights. Even though God had promised them the land and the victory. As Christians, we are, God's cho we are people chosen by God. We are cleansed by the blood of Christ. And like the Israelites, we are now in a place spiritually where we should be in communion with God, free from ungodly influences around us and serve him alone. But like the Israelites, we have an enemy in the land, one that invites us to make peace with it instead of war against it. It tries to tell us that it's okay to compromise, that there is room for their gods and our God. In the case of the Israelites, God promised them the land. He didn't mean they wouldn't need to fight. In our case, Christ has not just promised us the victory in the end, but he himself has defeated sin and death. And now we must live in that truth and wage warfare against the enemy until that glorious day when free from this earthly body, we will be in a place of eternal rest, total rest, and with him eternally. But in that intervening period between the promise and the possession, we must fight daily against this enemy. Not in our own strength, let me be clear, not in our own strength, but through the belief in the promise of God that he has given the victory to us before the fight has even begun. And we will see that the, uh, the Israelites, if they had followed through and destroyed the enemy, 
they would have experienced peace. It would have been for their greater joy. And the same holds true for us as Christians. If we obey the commands of God, if we fight daily against the influence of this enemy, it's, once again, not for our own salvation, but it's because God has commanded us to. And likewise, it will be for our greater joy. I can promise you that. So the question is, how do we do it? How do we fight against the influence of the world? The short answer is that we don't. God does. That's a blessing. And I just want to, I'm going to do a little sidebar here, but uh, pray for our youth. Uh, While working with the youth, I try to talk with them a lot about outside influence. And I tell you what, guys, what our youth today are facing in school, through social media, and all other channels is more than I could have ever imagined in my entire, in in my lifetime. It's a real enemy. And we must be in the battle. I wasn't going to say that, but please, pray for our youth. Pray diligently for them. So, what does it mean if God's promised us the victory? It doesn't mean that we sit around. It means we must fight from our position as victors. Imagine, if you will, a football team. I'm going to use a a sports analogy here um, because that's what I know to use. Uh, But imagine the best football team in the land. Obviously not the Browns. Just going to say that up front. Um, but the best football team in the land, they have the best coach, they have the best quarterback, they have the best running back, the best receivers, the best O-line, the best defensive line, the best of everything. They're looking good. And you're going up against the worst football team in the league. And not only are they the worst football team in the league, but they got Baker Mayfield at quarterback. (laughs) Sorry, I had to throw that in there. Um... On top of all that, the game has been fixed. There are powers working behind the scenes to make sure that this game is won by the best team. And it really wouldn't hurt the worst team to lose this because they're probably, if they lose this game, they're probably going to get the number one draft pick so they can replace Baker Mayfield. Um, You're going into that game and you're like, this is a shoe-in. It's guaranteed. There's, There's no doubt. Don't even need to watch the game. But what happens if those players ignore the game plan? What happens if they don't obey the coach? What if the coach gives a play, the quarterback calls it, he snaps the ball, and instead of running, the receiver, the receivers just stay on the line? What happens if uh, instead of following a certain blocking pattern, they, uh, you know, the O-line decides to just you know, do whatever they want to do, look into the stands? You still have to follow through. You still have to put in the work. Even though the victory is assured. Well, here's the thing. There is no such thing as an assured victory on this earth. But there is one guaranteed in eternity. And not only is God, I don't want to say he's the best coach, he's the greatest being in all the universe. And he has promised us a victory. 
but we still need to play, the, play in the game. Once again, not to earn our salvation, but because it's what he's commanded us to do, and we must obey him. There are many things we can learn from the narrative of the children of Israel and their fight to subdue Canaan. But today I want to focus on just three aspects of their fight. Three things that we can apply to our own fight for sanctification today. First, we want to look at faith, both in what God has promised and as a result of what he has done. Second thing we want to look at is obedience. Uh, Obedience that is born out of and an evidence of faith. And the third thing that I want to look at is praise, which is the proper placement of the glory from victories won. In our spiritual battles and in our journey of sanctification, these three things, faith, obedience, and praise, should mark our lives. They should mark us as children of God to all of those around us in the land of Canaan. So, what is faith? And let me be clear. Saving faith is a gift from God. Scripture is clear about that. The faith that I'm talking about today is not the saving faith of being made alive to the knowledge of who God is and what he has done and our need for him. That's not what I'm talking about. But the faith that I'm talking about is what causes us to act on that knowledge of who God is and what he's done. And in reality, those two are very intertwined and very difficult to separate um, from one another. Uh, But true faith in God, the knowledge of God, must be followed by a faith that is actionable. But the depth of that faith can vary at times. Uh, For the Israelites, I don't think they would have ever denied who God was, who he is. So they had faith in who he is. They had knowledge of who he is. But at times, they had greater faith than at other times. They had greater faith in what he could do some of the time. I know in my, lo- in my own life, I've experienced highs and lows in my faith. I've never doubted that God is real. I've never doubted who he is. I've never doubted that he's in control. And I've always believed that he can do great things through others. But when he asks me to step out and do what he asks, that's often a step too far. Because in that area, my faith is weak. I know who he is. I believe who he is. But sometimes my faith is not where it needs to be. So can our faith be strengthened? How can we strengthen our faith? If it's a gift from God, can we do anything to strengthen it? Well, Romans ten seventeen says, Faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. So first and foremost, faith comes from God himself. His word and proclamation of who he is, is sufficient. We should need nothing else. But, faith is often increased by evidence, by experience, by going through hard times and seeing his faithfulness in action. It's a first-person experience of his faithfulness that can really strengthen our faith and resolve going forward. The Israelites had many opportunities to see God's faithfulness in action. Despite their own weak faith and doubt, 
he proved himself time and again. The crossing of the Red Sea was prefaced by the Israelites doubting God's power to deliver them. They complained and asked why Moses had taken them out of Egypt only to die in the desert, in the wilderness. But despite their unbelief, God provided a way of escape through the very sea that they saw as an obstacle preventing their escape. They faced thirst. God provided a rock from which water sprung forth. They faced hunger. God provided daily manna for many years. They were faced with war-fighting nations trying to destroy them. A nation of ex-slaves going up against nations that are trained for war. They're equipped for war. Yet, despite their unbelief in some of these situations, God delivered them. God was faithful. And there are many more examples of his faithfulness to them throughout the Exodus journey. But let's skip ahead to when they entered the promised land. Before they entered the land that they've been journeying to for over 40 years, they had doubts. They sent in spies And they decided, we can't do this. And they were right. They couldn't do it. But what about the God that had fought for them for the past four decades? How could they quickly provide all the, or quickly forget all the times that he proved faithful? How could they forget that? It seems kind of odd to us how how they could. But when they do enter the promised land, finally, what's the first thing they face? It's a fortress city of Jericho. But once again, God. Using what we would describe as unconventional methods at the least, getting them to march around the city and blow some trumpets. Um, Despite those unconventional methods and these great odds, God delivers Jericho into their hands. But when commanded to follow through, Driving out the rest of the Canaanites, Israel falters in their trust for God. When faced with the tougher opponents, instead of trusting God to deliver them into their hands as he had done in Jericho and so on, they left them go or they bypassed them or they didn't completely defeat them. We may look at their inaction and say, you have so many examples of God being faithful. Uh, How could you not have faith? How could you not believe when God says the victory is yours? Well, what about my own life? What about your life? How many examples of God's faithfulness do you have in your life? In the life of your family, in the life of your friends? You've got a history too. Now when God asks you to step out and do something, are you always faithful? I'm not. My faith is weak at times. I fail to remember. God will ask us to do hard things at times. Is our faith strong? When God asks you to stand up in a situation that is difficult, when he asks you to resist the influence of the world, even when it may ostracize you, even when you may be laughed at, And youth, hear me. Even when it means you may have no friends at school. Wasn't a big problem for me. I was homeschooled. (laughs) 
But in those times, will you stand? Or will that fight look too big? Will you obey? Is your faith strong enough that it is a faith of action? Will you obey? That brings me to the second thing I want to look at, and that's obedience. Um, Let me show you in the text what happens to the Israelites when they don't take God's promise sincerely and don't obey his command. If we look back again at the beginning of chapter 4, and the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died, and the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth Hagoyim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed them cruelly for 20 years. 20 years of oppression. And the author takes care to note that it was cruel oppression. But look who they were being oppressed by. 900 chariots of iron. Where else do we perhaps see that in Scripture leading up to this narrative? Um, We do see it in Joshua 17, verses 16 through 18, when Joshua is instructing the people of what areas they're supposed to go conquer at this time. And it goes like this. The people of Joseph said, The hill country is not enough for us. Yet all the Canaanites who dwell in the plain have chariots of iron, both those in Beth Shean and its villages and those in the valley of Jezreel. Then Joshua said to the house of Joseph, to Ephraim and to Manasseh, You are a numerous people and you have great power. You shall not have one allotment only, but the hill country shall be yours. For though it is a forest, you shall clear it and possesses it to its farthest border. For you shall drive out the Canaanites, though they have chariots of iron and though they are strong. And guess what? Those very same opponents that we see in today's text are the ones, uh, in that text that we just read, are the ones that then ended up oppressing Israel so cruelly for so many years. So it's pretty obvious that that command from Joshua to go and conquer them was not followed through on completely. Because here we are, and as a result, they are facing this oppression a result of their inaction, of not addressing the problem of not obeying. Um, In his book, Promise and Deliverance, uh, S.G. DeGraff uh, puts it like this, and I really, really like the way he stated it. Israel had been called to wipe out the Canaanites. The Lord had given the land of Canaan to Israel so that he alone would be served there. Thus Canaan stands for the entire earth. The Lord alone is to be served in the earth. To achieve this goal, the Lord calls his people to engage in unceasing spiritual warfare against anything and everything that opposes the honor of his name. For us today, it would, just, it would be just as sinful and disobedient to enter into a spiritual agreement to live in peace with the forces of unbelief as it was for Israel to make an alliance with the Canaanites. After Joshua's death, the desire to renew the battle with the Canaanites began to stir again, Judah, in particular, made some significant progress assisted by Simeon, but the desire to fight soon wore off. What the tribes dreaded especially was going to war against the inhabitants of the valleys who had iron chariots. Sometimes they managed to subdue these Canaanites to the extent of making them pay tribute, but they did not wipe them out. Fear, always the opposite of faith, 
kept them from the conflict. Because of this attitude, the, battle against Sis- the battles against Sisera and his many chariots did not come until much later. So their joy, their opportunity to live in peace was delayed because their lack of obedience, their lack of faith in following through on what God commanded. But now in today's text, we see, the, we see obedience from a man called Barak. And against these very enemies, against great odds, he had faith in God's promise of victory. Though from this story, you could perhaps perceive that he might, you know, may have been lacking in faith, uh, you know, since he said that, you know, I will only go if you go with me, Deborah. We could see that as a lack of faith. Um, but even if his faith was uh, shaky at best, he still obeyed. He still went. And we, uh, we know the result. God provided a mighty victory uh, that finally gave the Israelites peace from their oppression. Even though the ultimate defeat um, of Sisera wasn't by his hand, but by the hand of a woman with a mallet and a tent stake. He was still referred uh, to by Samuel in Samuel's farewell address. He listed Barak among those who had acted to deliver uh, the people from oppression on God's behalf. Um, on God's behalf, And we likely would not have seen that reference from Samuel um, had he been considered to be one that was lacking in faith. When we obey God's command, it is for our joy. In the same farewell address, Samuel had this to say, if you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. Brothers and sisters, when God tells you to act, obey it'll be better for your joy. It will be well with you because of that. So Barak, um, he had faith in God's promise, acts in obedience, and the oppressor is defeated by God's hand, just as he promised. But what do Barak and Deborah do when the victory is complete? They turn to praise. And that is the third thing that I want to look at briefly today. Uh, let's read. I'm really debating whether or not I should do this, but I'm going to. I'm going to read, I think, all of chapter 5. I'll try to read it quickly here. Then sang Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, on that day, that the leaders took the lead in Israel and the people offered themselves willingly. Bless the Lord. Hear, O kings, give ear, O princes, to the Lord I will sing. I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. Lord, When you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. The mountains mountains quaked before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned and travelers kept to the byways. The villagers ceased in Israel. They ceased to be until I arose. I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. When new gods were chosen, then war was in the gates. Was shield or spear to be seen among 40,000 in Israel? My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel who offered themselves willingly among the people. Bless the Lord. Tell of it, you who ride on white donkeys, you who sit on rich carpets, and you who walk by the way. 
to the sound of musicians at the watering places. There they repeat the righteous triumphs of the Lord, the righteous triumphs of his villagers in Israel. Then down to the gates march the people of the Lord. Awake, awake, Deborah, awake, awake, break out in song, arise, Barak, lead away your captives, O son of Abinoam. Then down march the remnant of the noble of the people of the Lord, march down for me against the mighty. From Ephraim their root they march down into the valley, following you, Benjamin, with your kinsmen. From Machir march down the commanders, and from Zebulun those who bear the lieutenant's staff. The princes of Issachar came with Deborah, and Issachar faithful to Barak. Into the valley they rushed at his heels. Among the clans of Reuben there were great searchings of heart. Why did you sit still among the sheepfolds to hear the whistling for the flocks? Among the clans of Reuben there was great things, there was great searching of heart. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan, and Dan, why did you stay with the ships? Asher sat still at the coast of the sea, staying by his landings. Zebulon is a people who risked their lives to the death, Naphtali too, on the heights of the field. The kings came, they fought, then they fought the kings of Canaan at Tanak by the waters of Megiddo. They got no spoils of silver. From heaven the stars fought from their courses. They fought against Sisera. The torrent of Kishon swept them away, the ancient torrent, the torrent of Kishon. March on, my soul, with might. Then loud beat the horse's hooves with galloping, galloping of his steeds. Curse Merah, says the angel of the Lord. Curse its inhabitants thoroughly, because they did not come to help the Lord, to help of the Lord against the mighty. Most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, of tent-dwelling women most blessed. He asked for water, and she gave him milk. She brought him curds in a noble's bowl. She sent her hand to the tent peg and her right hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet he sank. He fell. He lay still between her feet. He sank. He fell where he sank. There he fell, dead. Out of the window she peered, the mother of Sisera, wailed through the lattice. Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the hoofbeats of his chariots? Her wisest princesses answered. Indeed, she answered herself. Have, you not found and, have they not found and divided the spoil, a womb, for two, a womb or two for every man, spoiled of dyed materials for Sisera, spoil of dyed materials embroidered, two pieces of dyed work embroidered for the neck is spoil. So may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends be like the sun as he has risen in his might. And the land had rest for 40 years. That was really long. I had a hard time getting through that. I'm not going to lie. But the reason I read the whole thing is the detail that's in that, sto- in that song. Um, I don't think it would be a number one hit today, to be honest. Um, but it is so detailed. It, it covers so many aspects of this story. It, it covers inaction. It covers action. It covers uh, every little nuance of it. And what does it do? Poem and... Uh, Song, like, you know, songs are a great way to communicate truth. They stick in our minds. They, uh, we're able to remember them well. And it was their first response. In the same way after the, battle, after the crossing of the Red Sea, what was, what was Miriam's first response? It was to break out in song. What is our first response when... Uh, when God wins a victory on our behalf? Do we quietly accept it and go on living our lives? 
or do we put it to verse? Do we encourage those around us with this story? Um, turning praise back to God where it truly belongs is very important because it's not of our own work that we accomplish these victories, but it's because of God who has won them for us. Uh, so in, in talking about enriching the faith, write down these victories. Write down what God has done for you. Commit it to your memory. Commit it to your journals. Commit it to perhaps showing it to other people. If we would do that, do you think it would serve to strengthen the faith of those that come behind us? Our faith and salvation is personal, but traditions, stories, and the faithfulness of God is something that is shared. It's communal. God didn't stop being faithful at the end of the biblical age. And yes, Scripture is sufficient, however, and I know following Scripture is sufficient with however is going to raise some eyebrows. So just hear me clearly here. Scripture is 100% sufficient, full stop, but the stories of God's faithfulness are not limited to biblical times. If it was, then we may, we may perhaps have reason to doubt because that would mean that God has changed since the biblical time. However, God has not changed. He's still winning battles on our behalf every day. Since the last story in the Bible, all through church history until today and from today forward, God will not change. He will continue to win victories on behalf of his people. Therefore, the stories of his faithfulness and of those victories should not cease with the biblical age. They should, they should continue through the modern church. They should continue going forward. They should be passed from generation to generation, from parents to children, from grandparents to grandchildren, and even within the church itself, generation to generation, um, sharing that story to those around you so that their faith may be strengthened. If we are faithful in singing his praises in this way and telling those stories, what difference would we see in their faith being strengthened? Would we see so many of the younger generation falling away because in their mind, there are no current examples of God's faithfulness? It's all from way back then. Don't be afraid to share of God's faithfulness in your life. Worship team, you can come up. Brothers and sisters, this morning, what is the state of your faith? Do you believe in the promises of God? Is your faith the kind of faith that takes action? When God says go, do you go? John sixteen thirty three. I just want to read a couple verses here that show some promises that God has made. John sixteen thirty three. I have told you these, these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. <coughs> Excuse me. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Isaiah 54.10 Though the mountains be shaken and the hills removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. James 4.7 
Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. That's very, very important to take that, that verse in the context of today fighting the influence of the world around us. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. John, um, I already read that one there. Uh, these are just a few of the promises. There's many more. Go look them up. It will strengthen your heart. It will increase your faith when you just read through the promises of God. Claim them as your own. Um, do you look back on the lives, on your life and the lives of those around you? Do you see many times that God has been faithful? The times he's won victories, do you reflect on them often? Do you allow them to strengthen your faith? If so, what areas of, of your life is God calling you to obedience in? Is it giving up control? Is it following a calling? Is it repenting of that sin? Is it sharing the gospel despite your fear of rejection? Is it saying no to the influence of the world? Perhaps by going so far as leaving a job or leaving a friend group that like the Canaanites did to the Israelites is influencing you to worship something other than God. Whatever it is, obey the command. Our actions don't save us. Only Christ can do that. But obeying in faith will certainly mark who we are to those around us. And it will be for our greater joy and peace. And last, when God has delivered a victory against great odds, are you diligent in returning the praise to him? Do you reflect on it quietly? Or will you do what Mir Miriam and Deborah did? And do you just proclaim it for all to hear? Only God is worthy of our praise. It is only through his son that we have peace with him. Brothers and sisters, scripture says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And if you look at the cultural influences around us today that are pressing in on us, it's becoming clearer and clearer. The things that were once celebrated in the darkest parts of society are now things that are being embraced by the mainstream church. And we're told that we're bigots if we don't embrace them as well. Without a doubt, Canaan has left its mark on the mainstream church today. Those who claim to be among Christ's chosen. Today, will you have faith to respond in obedience to his commands? And will you turn vic praise back to him in victory? We've been promised that victory and indeed, it has already been won on the cross. Now, will you fight as a victor, a fellow heir with Christ? Or will we continue to allow Canaan to press in on us, to influence our hearts and push us toward other gods? Jesus himself said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Brothers and sisters, that's our promise this morning. It's a promised land. Is our promised land is being with God, both in this life and in eternity. It's a promise to those who believe and obey. So live your life in the light of that promise. And you will have everlasting peace. Not just the type of peace that comes between judges like they did in the Old Testament. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for your word. We thank you how we can 
learn from it, how we can see uh, these stories of your might and of your victory and of those of faith that obeyed and followed you and the praise that they returned to you, Father. Will you help us in our own lives to wage warfare against the influences around us, the influences that try to bring darkness into our midst, Father. And we know, Father, that we do not do this on our own merit. We do not do this on our own strength, but we do it because you have promised us the victory, because you have won the victory. Father, help us to be faithful. Oh God, just please be with our youth. The challenges that they face are so much more than I think I could have dealt with when I was their age. Father, we just pray right now that you would strengthen their hearts. Instill them with deep conviction. Remove any doubt in their hearts about who you are and what your plan for them is, Father. We just ask as we go from here, would you just bless every person here, give us safety, and help us to be that light and a witness to the world around us. Help us to leave our mark and not allow others to leave their mark on us. We just ask this in your name. Amen.